0: Welcome to episode 20 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my industrious co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Good evening, Eddie. How has shop life been treating you?
1: Hey, Winston. It's been a busy weekend here. Productive.
0: I, I see you're, uh, you're swimming in gears right now.
1: Kind of. I'm ready for my weekend to start now. Um, yeah, so I'm cranking out uh, my next big order of of the Delrin gears and trying out a couple of uh, process improvements which were so far been failures like the one op that takes the longest time is the actual machining of the gear teeth profile with a 0.025 inch right now I'm using like a short no I'm sorry a long reach stub for that and the issue is like the, the actual flute length on the stub cutter it works great but I have to make three complete Passes around the uh, actually six passes around the each gear right because three for roughing and three for or yeah three for roughing three different depths right to get to the bottom and then uh, the the contour finishing it's another three trips around each part so that takes uh, like the bulk of the time on the machining tool didn't seem to have any problem I basically run it at the full rapid rate on the the Bantam Tools machine it seems to do fine uh, so I thought I had room to get more aggressive if I had more flute length, So I basically swapped out that tool for one of the same diameter, but with enough uh, flute length to go in one pass. Like it's almost just a little bit over four millimeters um, to get to the, I think it's like 4.03 millimeters, something like that. Um, Anyway, I wanted to try to do it in one. So I got a tool uh, basically the sister of the long reach stub. That's just, it's flute all the way up. And I got two of those and you know, I basically started with the same feed and speed I used on the long reach stub, and that broke instantly. Which I kind of had a feeling it might. Um, so then I basically backed off the, the feeds and speeds and tried it again with the second tool, and that one also broke <laughs> immediately on contact. So <laughs> yeah, it was kind of I was you know I knew that was kind of pushing it for those type of tools, you know, really thin tool that's long. But uh, I was kind of hoping the Delrin would would make it a little easier. So now I'm looking at, um, I still want to get that kind of runtime down for that one op. So um, now I'm looking at basically, I have two Bantam Tools machines here. And one of them, uh, op1, takes like four times what op2 does. So I have like an op1 pallet on one machine and an op2 pallet on the other machine. They both hold 12 parts. Uh, so now I'm thinking like, I should just build another op1 pallet, put it on the, on the second Bantam basically have two op 1s, basically 24 parts going in parallel on the uh, op 1 and then do op 2 somewhere else. So I'm looking at basically the tombstone and V250, 8-station tombstone, because basically as those parts come off at some point I'll have like 24 per run now if I do both machines, both Bantam machines. And then I can basically load that up with the next 24 and get it running, uh, the two Bantam machines running, and then come over and to the op two on uh eight at a time right on the vt50 and it'll still be done those 24 parts so you can have to load it reload the tombstone three times it'll still be done about the same time that the other mill finishes with the second pair of pallets so it'll actually work out pretty good um yeah so anyway that's for, the next stop go ahead
0: for roughing on the gears um are you just like running a, a contour op like straight around the gears or are you sort of using an adaptive to, to get into the gear teeth area
1: yeah it's adaptive uh, for the roughing and then uh, contour for the finishing so I leave a little bit of material for the contour to clean up um, for a couple of reasons like I'm trying to avoid kind of a bunch of you know stringy threads to clean up because I don't have like an ultrasonic cleaner or anything it's a, I want these parts kind of coming off pretty clean so that kind of that combination of tool paths seems to do leave a really clean cut. So I'll probably stick with that.
0: I'm wondering if you could like just back off on your optimal load and and just get through that roughing pass because the like profiling to like around the gears shouldn't be that difficult.
1: No, the finishing pass is quick. Um, it's it's the adapter that's kind of slow. Uh, if I like I said, if I could do it full length, it would be pretty quick. It'd be not much slower than the contour. But, um having to go around three times times twelve gears,
0: is there an intermediate length tool that you could do it like in two passes?
1: yeah, that's actually what I'm looking at next there's a uh, Harvey has one and daytron has one like the harvey three x would probably um i see I don't think two x would be quite long enough three x would definitely be long enough to do two passes, which you know that gives me a thirty three percent reduction on that op, which is pretty good i was I was shooting for 66 percent right with the with the really long flute, but um, something in between would still be an improvement so i'll probably do that and then if i have it you know if i have that running on both machines then it's even you know i basically double up um, i'll make be making 24 gears in the time it took me to make 12 with a little bit of you know a little bit of overlap for tool changes and stuff i'll have to stagger at the start time so i don't have to have like both machines waiting for a tool change but uh, I think that's going to really improve my efficiency because I expect, the I mean, the thing that kind of got me doing this is um, my last order was 50 gears and this order was 110 gears. And uh, I'm assuming they're going to either grow or become more frequent. You know, 110 is probably the minimum order size i will be getting from my client going forward. And I expect it to, you know, potentially grow. So I want to be able to crank up the productivity, right? When I do these, keep as many machines working as possible and me up to do other things so
0: yeah do you have sort of any just idea in the back of your head at what point they might just go to a bigger shop
1: they kind of know my limitations on production capacity um they're familiar with like the equipment i have here so uh yeah i think if their numbers ramped up they know that i can only go so far right
0: are we talking like a two three hundred maybe range like where do you think a job shop would be able to actually pick this up
1: Uh, It depends on the machine. Like, I I think you could do this if you had a three-axis machine with the vacuum table, and you could probably cut these out of a big sheet of Delrin, right? And as long as you had an accurate way to to do the two-sided op, because it it requires machining on both sides. So that would be more efficient than the way I do it. I cut, you know, a bunch of little blanks out of a round bar, which works good for these machines. But like, if I had a Neo, I just put a big sheet of Delrin that covered the whole table and cut a bunch of them out. I could probably be like easily 110 out of one sheet. Um, as long as the vacuum work holding was good enough, right, to let me flip it over. To I have to use tabs too? on Probably. probably Well, actually not necessarily, because at least with the Datron, the way the vacuum table works with that, they have like this paper, porous paper that goes underneath it. And I think it's there's some adhesive on it. So it's almost like, yeah, you could do it without tabs, I think, if the.
0: I think it's just uncoated. That's what Dan told me. So it's like like as raw as you can get in terms of like a paper product, um, because any any sort of coating will inhibit the, the flow of air. Um, but I don't think there's any like friction-enhancing surface to that.
1: I've seen parts that are similar, you know, similar approach, at least on the Neo, where they're you know, they're completely separated from the plate and they're still, and they're small parts and they're still sticking to the table. So that's probably all vacuum. Um, So anyway, that would be like, that would be my ideal ramp up. If, you know, if the guy came back and said, we still really want you to make these, but we want you to make them like a thousand at a time.
0: Hold on. Let me put down a a deposit on a Neo and I'll get back. to you. Yeah,
1: exactly. Let me call Let me call my leasing company. See what we can do. I think uh, the the epiphany about bringing the second Bantam machine in as an op one, uh, Hit me this evening like a half an hour before the podcast when i was updating uh, my instagram post for the day and someone was kind of giving me a hard time or teasing me about not using the uh the vt50 for anything i'm using for like stock prep and not much else um mainly because i i want to do like at least 12 of these at a time right i can fit that onto the other mill um with the tombstone i can fit i think at best eight so um but you know it's an up two that's actually perfect up to run so fast, it's really just taking the t- like the top hat off, and a little bit a little bit more to it, but for the most part, it's pretty quick. One tool change
0: for that. It's not too bad.
1: So I, I'll I'm not going to do that for this order. I'm almost done with the order, um, but on the next I'm going to basically do take the between order time, you know, between this order shipping and the next one coming in. Um, do some more R&D. I'm going to give up on the long flute. Uh, maybe go with like you said an intermediate length just to get the op 1 faster and then double up by putting it on the second machine, which means I got to make another pallet. And then I got to bring the second tombstone in. So I have one set up for vice. Basically for the quad vice and I have another tombstone that I haven't haven't prepped yet. Um, I was going to put like fixture plates on that one, removable fixture plates, which I probably still will, but I think I can I could the stuff I need to do for the fixture for the gears, so I can put right into the face on those and still put plates over it for other other stuff in the future. So that'd be pretty quick. So anyway, yeah, that's probably what I'll work on this week. How about you?
0: Not much has been going on. I've, I've been working on a large aluminum project that I, I don't quite want to reveal just yet, um, but, but people have been catching on on Instagram. Um, but I'm going to reveal it hopefully in April. Um, and... Uh, show it off at Maker Faire, hopefully. Just bring it around, and um, it, it's it's a big, shiny piece of aluminum, and uh, everyone knows raw aluminum uh, attracts makers like uh, moths to a flame, so I think it'll be a pretty good conversation piece.
1: Is that the biggest piece you've done on the Shapeoko in aluminum?
0: It is. I mean, most of my uh, aluminum pieces on the Shapeoko aren't really that big. I think um, the uh, that, that climbing nut tool that I made out of 7075 size wise is probably about the largest piece I had on it which really wasn't that big um I've done I think the the largest piece other than what I'm currently working on was the adapter that I made for my router table because those things are meant to hold like larger routers not little palm routers Um, so I had to make a adapter plate that would fit the mounting flange for the, uh, the holder of my, my tiny Makita or sorry, the DeWalt and that fit within an eight, within an eight inch diameter. So I actually machined that on the Nomad, which took forever, but, uh, it worked and it was super precise and the mounting holes fit perfectly. Um, so really eight to 10 inches is like the largest aluminum piece I've done before this. Um, and the, the revelation now is sort of that, uh, single flutes get you the, the chip evacuation, um, that you need combined with uh, a little air blast that gives you a lot of reliability, even on a hobby grade machine, uh, without like flood cooling or anything. Um, I've run about eight hours continuous, um, just hogging through aluminum and I haven't had any chip welding issues on my single flute. So that has uh, just opened up a lot of possibility to to remove a lot of material, not like fast by any industrial standard, because I think I, I calculated it out to like uh, 0.08 cubic inches per minute or something. Um, it, it's really not impressive, but it's slow and steady, and it will get me to where I need to be eventually without any drama.
1: Yeah, that's the most important thing on these machines, right? It's- you want reliability, I'll wait longer. (laughs) I'm willing to wait longer if I know it's going to work all the way through, right? Without a broken tool or gouge or anything like that, right? Some something, uh, because I tend to, I'm usually in the room when the machines are running, but um, on the, like when I'm cutting metal or something that's really not inflammable, I'll I'll take some liberties and maybe head out into the living room, watch TV for a little while, because I I can kind of hear the machines. If they're running right, you know, I can kind of leave the door open if it's not too loud.
0: I think that the machine, you're not running the Shape Oko yet. If if that is cutting metal, um, I don't know if you're going to be watching TV.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. No, I'm talking about the little machines here. Um,
0: you you got to pick up on, on slightly different cues. And also with larger tooling, it's uh, the, the deflection of the entire system that you have to sort of worry about. Um. Because y- there are certain modes of chatter that the Shapeoko will um, sort of pick up on that the Nomad wouldn't because it's just much smaller and more rigid. And also you're running different size tooling, so.
1: Yeah, you can put a lot more cutting force, I would think, with the Shapeoko. Um, with the bigger tools, right?
0: Yeah, it, there. it's just different modes of resonance and vibration that you run into and every machine is different. And that's why like developing feeds and speeds is like for desktop Grade machines is super subjective because the difference between like a Shapeoko and an X carve could push you in a completely different class of like feeds and speeds, uh, even though like the math behind them is the same. Like, whereas like if you go from like even like a 1100 Tormach to a, a Haas, like you can still carry over a lot of the similar recipes and just push a little harder. But the, the curve, um, that you run into with uh smaller cncs like there's sort of a an inflection point where all of a sudden your vibration increases exponentially uh, and that could, that point could be different for different cncs different rigidities different sizes
1: yeah i i hear you i mean that was like one of the side benefits i found using the datron single flutes was it's a bigger range of i guess if you're off a little bit on speeds and feeds it seems to be that tool seems to be much more forgiving than some of the other tools i run here which have very narrow bands where they work correctly um you get out of that you very quickly either end up with a damage tool or or uh, you know kind of chatter marks on the part um for some reason the single flutes and aluminum seem to just especially like when i was doing testing on the v250 i was kind of doing a lot of experimentation. Kind of real, real fast RPM, slow RPM, all kinds of stuff with the same tool, and really never ran into a problem. Other than you know, some of the slower RPM, the spindle would bog down a little bit because it didn't have much power down there. But um, yeah, like if I tried that with my some of my two flutes and three flutes, they would not have been as uh, comfortable running it. You know, that far out of their normal SFM, for
0: instance. I think it just the single food gives you a lot more flexibility to balance like RPM and, and feed rate to achieve like a desirable chip load. And plus like you have a little more carbide behind that cutting edge. So it's just a little more durable. And so all those factors, um, just, it makes it a more forgiving tool to be using.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's, those tools are working well on the Shapeoko too. I, I was pretty sure they would, but, um, and glad to hear that uh, there's some empirical results. I think uh, I'm trying to remember. I know um, Neil HSC Pro. He's I think he's using bigger single flutes on his new shapeoko.
0: Yeah, I think I saw like a, an eight mil or something. Yeah, and Vince's is, is, uh, that Vince, that's pretty brave. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think Vince has been running some big ones. Um, so that's that's kind of getting me excited to to start working on some some uh, metal on the shapeoko. Some, big, some thicker metal I've still kind of I think the thickest thing I've done on it is quarter inch plate, which is like on my other machines quarter inches close to the upper bounds oh uh, well, I guess you could do thicker than that <laughs> on the pocket see. How thick was that stock you did for the uh, for Alice's part?
0: That was one inch Oh yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I came at it from both sides. Uh, so I was the way I went about it was I contoured around the profile of the piece um, all the way through um, just to remove all the extra stock around the part. so I didn't have to like rough it away because the the material removal rate on the pocket NC is not great. Um, I found I was using my nomad feed rates for that because the the rigidity of the rotary axes isn't flawless. And so because they're they're stacked, Um, and the, the error compounds, uh, you really can't put that much force into the part. Um, so I ended up like tracing around the profile of the part halfway from one side, flip it around halfway to the other. Um, and I found out that I have to leave sort of an onion skin because if you try and cut through completely, as soon as you pierce that skin, the cutter grabs the, the outside free piece of the stock and if you're climb cutting, it sort of just implodes that part into the end mill and your your part. Um, and it's a very traumatizing experience.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've had that happen on the, actually on the Nomad when I was doing spinners. I used to, uh, sometimes I cut the stock a little too big and it, like the outer profiling on the outer parts should have left no material. But sometimes it leaves leave just like a little bit of a uh, wall. <laughs> And then yeah, when it get really when it gets really thin, then it just like almost wrap around the end mill like a like a sardine can opener. It's like that'll that'll wake you up pretty quick. Yeah. So I learned to measure a little more accurately. <laughs> Cut a little
0: more accurately. But that was a single 2D contour. And that was for me, I was using a eighth inch tool, cutting down half inch deep basically. So that's four times deep. And even with the the best air blast I could muster with my hydroponic pump, it was still, like, chatter city if just I couldn't quite get chips out of the way fast enough. And because of the way, like, I had little sort of one air nozzle coming in from above, um, the part could sort of occlude certain uh, parts of that cut. Like, if I'm, like, there's certain uh, directions of cut where there's, like, material above it that block the... Uh, air blast. And so there's just, there are places where I couldn't get chips out even with the air blast, unless I like came in with a compressed air gun and that wasn't happening for like a two hour operation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's time for a through spindle coolant version of the pocket and see.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, um, if, if the runtime itself wasn't already like 11 hours for that project, I would have done a roughing pass with that contour. Um, that's what I did on the Shape Oco with this current project. I was cutting through a uh, one inch uh, bar stock with a quarter inch cutter. and I ran a roughing up, uh, well, a roughing pass enabled on my 2D contour. So it basically it sort of almost pockets it out and it, it goes around the part twice with a step over. and that means you're only ever rubbing one wall at any given time and that worked out really well. It just doubles your your machining time.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, not that I have time anytime soon, but one day I might might be worth trying that, uh, the Alice part on the V250 here, just to kind of see. Because I know you ran into some issues, you were talking about kind of rigidity, but I see like very different behavior on the V250, even though it's the same architecture <laughs> as far as it uh, shouldn't be any more rigid, right? You know, I don't think it really is. I think it's just. Uh,
0: well, it is. You've got that new bearing. That's based on the new chassis.
1: That's true. Yeah. So even a, like a newer V210 would work better for you.
0: Yeah. But you, you've got um like, you've got the bearing as an advantage and you also have SFM. And we all remember that chart that uh Marv showed where as you increase SFM, that the force to get through a part um, actually decreases. So you're putting less load into the, uh your stock.
1: Yeah. That's exactly where I was heading. Cause like, my V two hundred and ten and my V two hundred and fifty both have the new bearing, um, the rotary axis bearing, which is uh, supposed to be considerably more rigid. Among the benefits that it gives you, um, but even you know the difference between my two machines, V two hundred and fifty, like I can be much more aggressive in aluminum than I can with the V two hundred and ten, even with the same end mill. So um, I think it's all in the RPM. Um, It'd be interesting to see how that part, how a how fast it would come out, and B what it would look like. So, if you're game, maybe I'll try that this summer.
0: I can send you the project file. I can also send you my my fixture plate file so that you can... Unless you come up with a better workholding solution for that stock, which would be really cool. Hint, hint, do a dovetail. But yeah, I'm curious to see that too. Because also, if you put less force into the part because you have that SFM, you can also achieve much better surface finish. um, Just because you get less vibration, less deflection. So, like... You could probably make a really good looking nerf blaster cage,
1: yeah, it'd be interesting and you were using mostly the the that new carbide tooling right from carbide three d
0: yeah um which i mean there there's a bunch of single flutes out there uh we just we tried throwing uh z r encoding on ours
1: yeah no i was I was actually curious at keeping as many variables the same as possible that'd be just an interesting comparison between the two machines. Uh, I think I have a lot of the same cutters or end mills that you used. So yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll put that on my summer project.
0: Yeah. And all my, my tools are identified. So.
1: So that was an interesting part. I mean, um, I don't know, like ultimately those go back to Alice, right. And she's going to use them in her modding, her nerf gun modding. Uh, I don't know if that's a business or something. She just does. It it is.
0: It's a, a little side hustle that she runs. Um, and the, the community there is, um, like every, every sort of fandom and community has their own like rabid group of like fans. And, um, that, that nerf community is no different. It's an interesting group of people that, uh, I don't know if I'll ever fully understand, but it's, it's still cool how much thought goes into things like this.
1: I've seen more of stuff that she's received from other people, like that. I guess there were gifts to her um, from that same community, right? They're modified.
0: Uh, nerf. There's a whole ecosystem and like, uh, like industry around nerf mods, which I had no idea about. Like my idea of modding a nerf gun was when I saw Adam Savage's like video on tested where he like did of a, a blaster with like this awesome paint job and weathering and stuff. But that that's sort of like in my mind, like a level one mod functionally it's identical it's just cosmetically different, but they're actually modifying the internals to, to change the performance of each blaster. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They look like they are almost making them lethal. <laughs> they're like way upping the power on. It was pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I'll put Alice, I don't know if I put her in last week's or last episode, we talked about it a little bit, but I'll put her, her Instagram page in the show notes this time. Um, it's Alice coat duck. On Instagram, I
0: gotta yell at her to to put out more content, but yeah, she she does good work. Yeah, so I'm hoping
1: to see kind of where that part goes next. Um, I don't know when she's getting around
0: to actually uh, working you, on that People project. may or may not see the finished piece at Maker Fair. Okay, so, uh, right. Yeah, she she's presumably going to Bay Area, and so I will bring the um, unmentioned part that I'm working on on the shapeoko she'll bring the blaster and I can shoot the wrap ups to two hopefully epic project videos.
1: Yeah, that's going to be good. Um, that was really just that seeing the pocket and tackle a big piece like that was kind of inspiring to me. So it's got me thinking about some, some fun projects for later this year that I don't think I would have considered putting on the pocket and <laughs> um, if I hadn't seen you do a big piece like that. So,
0: you know, in hindsight though, if I were to, I have no interest in mass producing these, but if I were, I would probably do them as uh, just setups on a three axis, just because I can hit a higher material removal rate on the shape or, or the Nomad, um, but like, just have like stations for op one, op two, op three, and um, just step through them like you're doing with the gears, just for three or four sides
1: yeah i got a lot of questions about why i wasn't doing them on the pocket nc like five axis you know i guess the, the assumption was i w- could avoid flipping them over but um like if you actually look at what i'm doing i think you'll kind of see like why three axis made the most sense it's mainly so i could do so many at once right um and i could do i could do these on the nomad and i would be if i had more rpm i just don't have enough rpm to run that real small cutter efficiently on there um the vt two fifty has has the RPM, but uh, doesn't have the holding capacity, right? So it might actually turn out, I haven't really sat down and done the math that, well, because the other mill is pretty fast too with the spindle, um, and it's got a faster feed rate. So I still think it's the winner of all the machines here. It's probably the right one to be
0: doing those on. You know, unrelated, but I'm wondering if the Pocket NC has room to go faster. Like, not in a, a cutting situation, but like if we're just rapiding, like doing a G0 move, I'm wondering if they could just crank up the uh the the stepper motors and the lead screw just a tiny bit because if we can do a non-engagement move like to to wrap it to the beginning of a new adaptive uh arc at 100 that would just help a lot.
1: Yeah, I I don't know what the exact limitation is there. Um you could definitely go with it like a coarser pitch on the lead screw, but you'd be trading off some accuracy, right?
0: Yeah, I mean the the thing is usually it's like as you crank up the stepper motor, you start to lose uh, torque um, because you're just going so fast. Like you can't build up the full electromagnetic force behind it. Um, but if you're just rapiding outside of stock, it might be. I don't know. I'm just projecting and, and trying to like secretly hope that the uh, the NC guys are listening and that they might consider this in the future.
1: Well, I know the next generation machine. Uh, I mean, that, that's public. The some of the details were on their Instagram post, the teaser for it last year um, on Matt's Instagram page. And uh, he mentioned some feed rates and rapid rates that are outside of the league and what's going on in pocket NC. So <laughs> I think you'll <he'll> be happy. <laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to afford it. Yeah. Cause <laughs> it's going to definitely be a next level <laughs> machine, but um, it's going to be considerably faster than the, uh, the current pocket NC and faster than any of the other machines here. Um, maybe the Shea Poco as far as Rapids? But, uh, yeah, where I was kind of heading with Alice's stuff is, you know, you were talking about the creative, there, there's a lot of chatter <laughs> on Instagram lately about, you know, just design and uh, copying of other people's work without credit, potentially. Um, I mean, I, I see that come up every once in a while, and, you know, I having been a guy that was making spenders for a while, right? I, I don't consider like, every, everyone was kind of copying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's only really a few designs.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it was, once the idea is out there, it's, it's fair game for anyone.
1: Yeah, and to me, like, you know, there's different kinds of copying, right? If you just literally make a knockoff of somebody else's stuff, that's one thing, right? And, um, but there's also, like, there's kind of the other thing going on, too, like, from the opposite end, which is yeah, I'm thinking of the and the woodworkers, right? They were recently a little boohahah about the river tables, right? The resin-filled tables, and somebody <laughs> claiming to, hey, that's my design. It, I don't think he, he was the originator of it, right? I think there was prior art floating around.
0: There, uh, the concept was not new. Um, I'm not sure whether or not they resolved uh, if the term river table had been used prior, but it, it's it just spawned off a lot of snarky, like, Oh, I'm going to make a, um, like a puddle table or a stream table. And it it was, it was not a happy time for the community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, one, one take is, even if you think you have something unique, a lot of times it's probably not as unique as you think. Um, but then again, you know, the whole reason, like most of us are doing this is, is a creative outlet, right? So, and, and potentially it's a way to make money if you're, if you're actually productizing what you make, but, you know, why do it if it's not unique or if it's not your like, what's the fun in it? Right. To go copy someone else's design, like that wouldn't even appeal to me. Uh, I, I might like at best if I saw something I really liked on Instagram, you know, it's another instant machinist I might make one for myself. Right. Or see if I can make it. Maybe it's just a challenging part and I want to see if I can make it. I've actually done stuff like that. I would never like sell it to somebody else. That would be like a make and keep or make and throw away just as an experiment. Um, So I actually do quite a bit of that when I see something that looks challenging, like try to figure out how they made it and try to make it here. Most of the time I'm not successful because I don't know how they did it, (laughs) but you always learn, right? Doing stuff like that. Especially when I was first starting out, I was doing a lot of, uh, that's actually how I got into spinners. I I was looking at, like I saw a lot of really cool shapes that were coming um, kind of out of the spinner community back then. And um, I was just, playing around with modeling I wasn't ever thinking of making one but it was a good shape to model like some of the variations on it that I saw so just getting helped me get better at fusion to make a few of those. so just that just happened to be the subject that I picked right the model to uh, see if I could yeah and then I ended up you know doing my own and I'd never seen those out there quite like mine but um, but like if you looked at the first like five generations of spinners that I made and never productized they were to look like I made the Tormach spinner. I mean, they're all, you know, knockoffs of something else I saw just cause I wanted to see if I could model it and then make it. Um, so I have like one of each of those lying around here, but uh, they're definitely not my design. I mean, I was just kind of wondering what you think. Like, I don't know how big a deal it is. Uh, you know, like Saunders kind of talks about, he's kind of anti-patent as far as, um, you know, really if you're working on something, it's more than just the product or the part, right? It's, the process and the people, that you know, even if like I kind of feel the same way. If I made something and somebody knocked it off, it would kind of pissed me off a little bit. But I know, like, I would like to think mine's better, right? Because it's my design and I made it, and I know the most about it. Um, but yeah, I'd probably feel differently if I was actually trying to make a living off of some one particular product line, right? And had competition that was, you know, it, it depends on how I guess the impact, right? That the cop, that the. A, a clone of my product, if I had one out there, um, would have all my sales, right? And I think in the kind of stuff that you and I do when we do product, it's kind of unique and half of what probably attracts people to us is our story, not so much the product. So it'd be a little harder to clone and actually probably get the same benefit we get.
0: I mean, I think we're both kind of fortunate in that our livelihoods are not dependent on sales of what we make to to survive. Um i have like everything i make there's a project video for it and if you watch that video even if i don't put out a fusion file for you to download you can still pretty easily reverse engineer everything i did and so for me it the only thing stopping people from blatantly copying me is like level of effort or just the amount of uh like research into that process so when i made the um the SpaceX, uh, drone ship drink coasters out of wood. Um, and I, I, torched the top to, to get that dark contrast. When you cut through, you see the, the unburned wood, um, that caused so many issues in the process. Like the wood would warp and bow and twist and, um, I, no one else would want to go through that process, but I, I came out with a jig where I could clamp down multiple pieces of wood. Um, I started when I, after I burned the wood and I, um, I, I first bought like a thicker piece of wood, and I burned both sides, hoping it'd be even. Then I bandsawed it, um, and then I sorted um, those uh, sheets of thinner wood that were roughly between a quarter inch to three eighths of an inch. I'd, I'd drum sand them down to a consistent thickness, and then I'd stack them up. Um, like some were still thicker than others, so I grouped those and I machined all of those at the same time, so I could sort of zero the Z for all three of them at the same place. And they're just little lessons that i learned that even if you knew it you would probably know that it's just not worth your effort and at that point i was sort of committed to making a certain quantity um, because i I put out a couple on etsy to sell um so either you can make something that's too annoying to make that people wouldn't want to to knock off and i think that's what happened to what printer bot was it the other thing i think is just for me Um, I don't like to keep making the same thing again and again and again. I know that's what you're doing with the gears, but for me, once I make a couple of something and I sort of learn the process and I I get what I can out of it from a satisfaction perspective, I just move on. And by always moving, uh, you you become a much harder uh, target to copy. And like, I think that sort of the value we bring is in our creativity because we can't match job shop in terms of throughput. Uh, we, we just don't have the, the capacity to do that, but we can come up with unique ideas. And ideas and telling a story, um, I think go pretty far in selling what we make. Um, like for for my stuff, it's like, I come up with the idea, like I'm gonna make a bottle opener out of a SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule. That it's a preposterous idea, but it's, I think, cool. And there's at least a handful of people who can get behind that Um, with what you're doing. It's a lot of precise work and metal, like your, your fidget spinners. It's, it's super high precision. Um, You can tell a lot of thought and just good manufacturing went into that. And I think that's also like why uh, Grimsmo is so successful because his knives, like no one, well, I mean, there are other people who put that level of effort into it, but Grimsmo has been very uh, public about, all the processes that he puts into it and like that story, you can't help but be inspired by it.
1: I hate to use the word craftsmanship because to me, that's almost reserved for the people that, you know, the click and folks that are doing this, like making amazing things with hand processes, right? That's like the epitome of fine craftsmanship, but um, but the same concept, basically you're bringing your knowledge and, you know, unique not just creativity, but, uh, your approach, right. To do, doing something. And, and like, I think, you know, you're probably making things that would never be profitable for mass production anyway. Right. The, the company would go bankrupt trying to probably make your SpaceX, uh, capsule <laughs> dragon capsule.
0: I mean, it's, it's possible, but I think there's a, there's sort of, um, a hill that you have to get over in terms of effort. And I mean, what we have fun with is a lot of the, like sort of the R and D side of things, which is inherently not profitable. Like if I'm going to go out of my way to like cat up a a SpaceX capsule, um, and then figure out the tool pathing for that, and then maybe, or maybe not have a a marketable product after that, I think it's very hard for a, a business entity to come up like with a, like they're not going to arrive at the conclusion that this is profitable, uh, to, to sort of go down that route and see if it works. And for us, like, because it's not our, our main job, we can sort of be like, this is a project that I'm passionate about. I just want to take it, see where it goes. And because of that, um, we, we come out with some pretty cool ideas that just aren't viable, uh, to bring to market for, other companies because they just they don't want to invest that initial effort into seeing does it work or not.
1: Right, yeah. Like my spinners, you know, I put a lot of time into them, um, but eventually I sold enough to kind of recoup most of the costs um, and you know get a little bit of profit on those. But a lot of the stuff, um, probably especially like you're doing much lower volume. Um, I think I don't know. I, I'm assuming actually I don't know how much you've sold on Etsy, but it's usually probably. 20 or less of any particular item, right? And if you think about all the R and D time you put into it. It's, it's more of a passion, passion project, right? Yeah, but it's not going to deter you from doing it. Cause you know, making a profit on your parts, isn't your primary goal, right? So, um, I mean, you get paid back, not necessarily monetarily, but you, you get satisfaction off growing your YouTube channel and, you know, bringing this I guess, uh, digital fabrication experience to a broader audience, right? That's a big payback right there for what you Yeah. Do. The,
0: the profit is kind of secondary. So, I mean, I think that in and of itself, it, it liberates you to be more creative. Um, so I think, I think that's a, a luxury that we have that other people might not have. Yeah.
1: And I just sidestepped the whole issue completely by making parts for other people. <laughs> right. That's been, that's been uh, nice lately. Um, but yeah, I am kind of getting itched to you know start doing more of my own products again um, or my own ideas. At least I have some, right, some stuff that's been on the back burner, still mostly work holding, but some creative stuff too. That uh, so I want to start weaving into my production schedule here. Just got to figure out where to like reserve a little bit of me time on the machines. So uh, yeah, i was just kind of wondering where you were thinking about just the whole. Thing around, like, I don't really care if anyone copies a good example, like the tombstone, like right? that seems to have been generate quite a bit of interest. And um, I've had a few people ask me, like, would you be, you know, would you share the design? I'm like, I already did, it's actually up on um, in my CCNC. You know, I gave John permission to share the, the fusion file and everything, and I still may make a product out of that someday, but I'm fine if somebody else wants to go download the fusion find someone who either has a machine to make it themselves, you know, second machine to go with their pocket and see or like a torn mock or something, or, um, you know, as a machinist friend, right. They can make it for them for their own use. I, I have no problem with that. Um, I would feel probably a little differently if I saw someone just take the design and start productizing it and selling it for the pocket and see.
0: Yeah. Like if they went to China and they just started mass producing them, that might be a little different.
1: Um, one side I'd be like really happy cause I need more tombstones and that might make them available to me cheaply. <laughs> but, um, no, but really I, you know, I haven't given up on, uh, productizing that it's probably, you know, it's a very small market, but, uh, may not ever make money on it, but I still want to kind of see it. It's useful enough, you know, that I'm experiencing here that I think other pocket and see users or selected ones that have the same kind of recording challenges I do, uh, would find it useful. So yeah, we'll see where that goes. But, um, I have no objection to anyone that has a pocket and see and says, "Oh, I wish I had tombstone too." And I can't. I'm not in a position to provide them one right now, or to to market one. So uh, yeah, if they have the means to make one, get one made for themselves. um, I'm all for that. Like that. That would actually pretty pretty much make me happy to see a second one out there somewhere, just kind of randomly show up on someone's um, pocket and see. That'd be pretty cool. But yeah, all the stuff's up there.
0: Philosophically, like most of my stuff, I I sort of just treat it as. Creative Commons non commercial. So, like, if you're not trying to like mass produce it without my blessing, like, I'm okay. Uh, people have asked me for, um, I mean, like a magnetic uh, closing ring box. And people have reached out to me, like, hey, can you share the fusion file for that? And I've, I've sent it to them, even though it's something I have sold on Etsy. That's
1: yeah, part of what's good about this community, right?
0: If they want to go through the effort to make it, I am happy to allow them to do that. So it's a luxury that I am afforded because I can, aff- like I won't not be able to put food on the table if I lose sales to someone else.
1: Right. Right. And, um, yeah, you know, and I always think it's, it's very nice when people ask. <laughs> That's I always do that too. If I, you know, if I see something that I want to kind of, you know, if exactly copy, I'll, I'll most of the time I'll just reach out to the guy if I or the person on Instagram and say, hey, um, you mind if I make one of these for myself it's usually more of a Etsy or an Etsy thing at EDC type thing everyday carry.
0: oh which speaking of um I just got my maker knife from uh Shaco out in Italy and that thing like mechanically is just it's really cool some people might think of it as a gimmick but I think it's just a mechanically elegant solution um that there's very few moving parts um but that is a thing where, like, as soon as the idea is out there, as soon as someone gets their hands on it, they might be really tempted to copy it. Um, but there are certain things about its manufacturing, like that it requires EDM to, to make some of the internal parts that move just based on their, their deflection uh, and the, the springiness of the material that you probably wouldn't be able to do, like, even if you had a CNC or a 3D printer, it's just you're not going to be able to recreate that mechanism. And so I think that's actually pretty innovative.
1: Yeah, that's the you know that's the other way to to build a moat around your product, right? Just basically build something that's almost impossible for someone else to make. Unique process, right? That you you maybe master. Yeah, there's a certain
0: barrier to entry, which I mean, um, he had to go to China to find the capability because his European manufacturing partner like bailed on him. Um, So technically, if anyone else wanted to steal his idea, they could just probably go to a factory in China and probably next door to where he's making his, and make it. But the barriers, the sort of the activation energy to to cross that hill, like that threshold, where you can recreate that object, is pretty high. You have to go find a company that can make parts that are EDM'd. um, And it's just, like, the average Joe is not going to go through that effort.
1: And it wouldn't wouldn't really be the maker knife, right? It'd be some cheap clone of the maker knife and i think half the half the appeal of that particular artifact is the story behind it so um yeah i I was just kind of wondering just having seen all the stuff that was going on the last couple of weeks on instagram what you what you were thinking about it like i don't have enough product out there today to really have to worry about it i have nothing out there really that's um in between products i guess (laughs) right since i shut down spinner production yeah
0: i I think if we had like a product line that had like more legs that like you could make certain things like let's say that gear let's say it was like public knowledge other people were making them um and you had to differentiate your product for like a year or two down the road someone's going to encroach on your market at some point but um like for me my products have such short lifespans, like once the idea is out there, I move on that it doesn't affect me. But like, let's say um, like Saunders, his fixture plates, like those are kind of like a known quantity, like that design, it's not going to change. And someone could go to China and manufacture them probably cheaper. So, and there were
1: people making fixture plates before him, right? And there's, there's other companies making very similar looking products, right? But his, you know, I know, you know, just based on the podcast, I know he spends a lot of time perfecting the process, getting really high quality, high accuracy holes and threads. So um, yeah, it's kind of like if I had a choice, I think I would if I had a machine that would fit one of those plates, I'm pretty sure I know where I'd be sourcing it from. Even if there were like cheaper ones out there.
0: Like my my point was sort of just that's a product where it is um feasible or conceivable that there would be a race to the bottom and that's not a place I want to be
1: exactly because like tooling plate I think that's a pretty generic product right and there's it's an old idea right this uh, I'm pretty sure John doesn't claim to have come up with the fixture plate um and that's not really like his the value he's bringing is in his process and quality control over it um and his pricing I think his pricing is pretty aggressive on those uh, and the whole ecosystem he kind of grew up around the plate, right? The modular vice—that's really where the kind of some of the unique stuff is showing up. Um, but yeah, that you know—that's probably a good example. Like, I don't know if someone else started making fixture plates that were similar to his. Um, probably, if he came up with the whole system that he had, he wouldn't be happy. I would imagine. Um, but but yeah, I'm sure there's going to be other people just making fixture plates come those come and go right um, yeah so I don't know I, I don't want to spend like too much time on this but uh, it was just kind of interesting I, I guess the advice you know just focus on your own design right and that's really where the joy is anyway in this stuff it's like uh,
0: it's easy to get lost in the ocean of other people and what they make out there so whatever you can bring um, like just from your own creativity, your own processes that make it different, uh, I'd say double down on that.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, the one thing I don't want is like instant machinist community all of a sudden going dark because no one wants to share what's going on in their shop, right. Um, how they make stuff. So, because people are just ripping it off. Right. So hopefully that's not going to be, I don't, I don't see the trend going that direction. I think it's just it flares up every once in a while, but, um, you know, this has been a great community. It's expected it to continue to be a great community. Uh, with a lot of sharing going on, both process and skill and and technique, right? So that's what that's like. Some of the best part of that, anyway. So,
0: uh, well, let's talk about something on a lighter note.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you killed. So I talked about the inmills I killed. You had some zombie inmills that you brought back from the dead, didn't you?
0: I I did. Um, I heard from an Instagram user, Jonathan Anderson. Um, that he had tried soaking his end mills in sodium hydroxide. lye. So I purchased some, not with the intent of dissolving a dead body, but of dissolving the aluminum that he said was what I was seeing on the end mills that I had. So after my like massive aluminum projects, um, I looked at my end mills. They were they were pretty gray or silver, and I was like, oh, the coating must have rubbed off. And he said no, that's probably built-up aluminum on the end mill. And I, I was a little skeptical because it was so thin that it was hard for me to tell if it was above or below the surface of where the end mill should be. Um, but I I dunked the the coated cutters in the, the sodium hydroxide. They started bubbling, and then they turned back to gold, and that sort of blew my mind because I thought that um, with, like, my my slightly suboptimal feeds and speeds because I'm running a hobby machine that I was just rubbing the aluminum a lot, causing heat and just uh, abrading away the coating. But it actually turns out the coating is a lot more durable than you think. And it's still under there. And once you free that, uh, you sort of restore the cutting edge to its its maximum theoretical potential. I mean, it's the cutter is still going to dull over time, but that extra aluminum that builds up just sort of blunts the edge and it makes the, the flutes just a little less slippery. And so I've sort of, I haven't done too much cutting with these new end mills, but I think they might actually be rejuvenated. And my pile of old cutters that I've sort of relegated to roughing might actually have a lot more life left in them. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm hoping that other people try it out and, and provide a little more feedback just instead of one point of data. Cause this would be awesome for the community.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I mean, that's actually uh, kind of an old, old uh, trick, <laughs> I guess. Um, I, I'd used it before on some Lakeshore carbide tooling that I had, uh, like back when I just had the other mill. I, like the first few times I cut aluminum, I ended up with chip fouling on the small tools here, and they were uncoated because I, I didn't know about coated tools at first. Um, but like. At the time that, yeah, I had like maybe ten tools (laughs) to my name, (laughs) and they seemed expensive. Like uh, I, I wanted them to work right, (laughs) so I didn't want to go buy new ones. So I started like googling how to how to get chips. I actually had chips welded, right? It wasn't just a coating like that. Um, And basically said, I think I can't remember where I saw it, but said drop it in Drano, and which is what I did, and uh, which is really mostly sodium hydroxide. And it did. It ate away the aluminum. Um, the only thing that was weird, like my results were different than yours, probably because I wasn't using a pure solution like you were, is like the carbide turned black. Like it almost looked like a lithium disulfide coating on it by the time it was done. But the tool cut great.
0: I, th- I think um, uh, Jonathan did a little bit of research. I don't think he concluded that uh, carbide was fully impervious to sodium hydroxide. The zirconium nitride is, and so that you can leave indefinitely, but the carbide itself, um, the, the verdict is still out as to whether or not it would hold up. So for all the coated cutters I did, I I left them upright. I didn't submerge the entire thing. Yeah, it
1: definitely changed color. Um, it did cut again, like it worked for a while. Um, and then I probably broke it (laughs) So I was still learning back then, but, um, yeah, it was. I think if I, yeah, you know, I would do it the way you did it next time. Anyway, um, just go mix up your own pure sodium hydroxide. Be careful with that stuff, right? It's pretty nasty, but yeah. But I don't know what else was in the draino that may have like complicated the process or. But, um, nowadays, like usually, I don't bother because except for some of the bigger Datron tools I have, most of them are just you know I, I use them till they wear. It. Well, I guess I don't really have. I don't get chip welding that often. I think if I did I would probably do that more often because if everything else is good with the cutter, I, I would want to use it again. But um, yeah, most of the like the little tools I use are so sort of cheap I just buy another one if it gets messed up.
0: Yeah, at at this point the thought of a like breaking a ten or fifteen dollar cutter doesn't seem that traumatizing to me anymore. I think uh just getting more experience has sort of changed us. We're not in that same like like let me preserve my like one sixteenth inch cutter that I only have one of. Like we, we have like dozens of them now. Yeah,
1: well, that's exactly the thing that like, there are tools I only have one of and if I'm in the middle of a job and it's not cutting because it's got some chip welding and I need that tool to finish the job, then I probably would go. <laughs> I'd be going down to Home Depot to get some live because I could get it going faster than ordering a new one, right? Or at least get it going until I get the new one. So, so you're without your pocket in seats.
0: I'm going on like a bunch of travel in the next two months. Like I'm going to a wedding this coming weekend um the weekend after that i am uh going to a i don't know if i i can say yet but it is a sponsored event where they will show me uh like a bunch of vendors will come out and show me tools um and then in may there's bay area maker fair and in between i might have more travel so i'm just in and out of my garage for the next 2 months and i know i've got enough uh 3 axis work to keep my project queue like crammed full for like the next 3 months and uh, I know Chris has been itching to, to sort of get his hands on some five-axis capabilities, So I met up with him, uh, grabbed lunch with him, and said, hey, I, I've got a CNC that needs a foster home if you're willing to take him. And uh, of course he was willing. And so uh, our, our mutual friend Chris is now uh, learning the, the magic of simultaneous five-axis milling.
1: Yeah, so he was already—he jumped right into it on his first cut,
0: right? Within 24 hours, he's doing multi-axis stuff, and I know he's got like—he's been reading up on it, but that's—that's still really good. And so I think he's going to get pretty far in the next six weeks. So we should definitely uh, link up with him after he sort of concludes his five-axis experience to see what he thinks, whether or not it's uh, lived up to his dreams.
1: Yeah, and um, he's—he's putting some miles on a. Uh, bantam tools machine too so i'm looking forward to hearing his feedback on that he he tends to do things that uh, um i I can take, you know gives me takeaways so what he posts
0: actually that process of teaching him uh five axis so like he came over my house and like i just ran him through some of my my fusion programs and as i was explaining them i started thinking of like oh i could have used a different tool path for that like instead of like a trace On a a curved surface, I could have used a multi-axis contour and just little realizations like that um, as you're teaching and as you're like reviewing old things you've done, that can actually be really beneficial. And so I I highly encourage people, if you have the knowledge, share it, because if you can teach it, um, that just, that proves to yourself that you have a mastery of the material and If it causes you to pause and think, that's actually a good place to reflect and and see where your own knowledge can be improved. It was also kind of fun. Um, We were making, uh, so as as sort of the, not really the agreement, but when he agreed to take the machine, he's also like, uh, I want to make an enclosure for this because it's going to run in his tiny shop and um, plastic and aluminum chips get everywhere. And so he wanted to make an enclosure, but he didn't have access to a Shape oko, so uh, he brought a big piece of plywood over, and we were carving that. And um, the size of the platform that he wanted to machine um, was about 14 inches, which is easily doable on the Shape Oko, but I had sort of centered the piece a little too far back, and so I crashed the gantry into the, the Y-positive hard stop, and uh, we, we sort of had to just... Um, think on the fly of ways to get around that Um, so like we we switched out to a smaller tool so that like the the machine didn't have to travel as far to clear the outer profile of the part and that troubleshooting um, is something that uh, is I don't know for me that's sort of the fun part if you have someone else's toolpaths and like you just hit run like there's nothing learned there but when you run into problems not like uh, problems that just stop you on your track and like you're like this is unrecoverable but problems where a little creative thinking can can help you find a solution or a workaround that's for me where the the, the fun comes out and um i don't know i've had this idea in the back of my head i know like um there's a lot of like uh, competition shows be it cooking be it making like i know dressed in la right now to film making it season two and uh oh there's also like a uh, Forged in fire. I was secretly hoping that someone would come up with the idea to do like a real time CNC challenge. I think that would be a lot of fun. But I'm I'm also biased.
1: That sounds like a maker fair event.
0: It would be, but the problem is like it's it's a skill that few people have. Like like a forging challenge, okay. Uh like a woodworking challenge, sure. But I don't know, our community like there's I like things like obstacle courses and puzzles. I would love if someone did like an Instagram, like, like there's the IG Builders Challenge, where it's like, hey, this this month's theme is to make a desk or make something inspired by whatever. Um, if there's something like that for the CNC community, that wasn't nearly as open ended as the Autodesk Cam Challenge, uh, where it's like, oh, make anything that has our logo on it or something. Like, I think that would be a lot of fun.
1: So you're, yeah, I guess you're going to be traveling, so you've got probably projects queued up to
0: Mm, not really what I'm doing is I am trying to plan out like, all right, when I get back from the wedding, what am I going to work on? Cause the, the ultimate goal is like, I've got something I want to get done in time for maker fair. So it's what can I schedule? Um, and there, there's other like processes that go with it. Like the thing I'm making, it's aluminum. It'd be nice if I could anodize it. And so there's a lead time associated with that, which means I need to finish, the machining portion by like end of April and uh, just that timeline is, has to work around my travel schedule. So um, there's a little bit of like certain projects have to get pushed aside for other things. And all the while I'm still trying to like lay out the roadmap for the carbide 3d content. Uh, So that's, that's just everything I'm juggling right now.
1: Yeah. I've got uh, other than the gears, I've got a couple of other new commercial projects to do this uh, work on this week and next week, one's a prototyping project. It's actually a really cool part, and I can't show it. <laughs> um, but the other one, I think I'll be able to show. But it's not very interesting. It's just a, a Delrin piece. But uh, the only thing that's kind of challenging on it is I have to drill a two-inch hole, like lengthwise through a, a block of Delrin. A couple of holes, actually. So, um, and it's a multi-axis part because it needs machining on uh, three sides and edge, like, uh, face holes on the edges. So, um, I'm going to give it drilling a try on the pocket and see again, uh, it will be a smaller diameter tool. This is going to be, well, actually it's about as big as I used last time. I think I tried to do one eighth inch in aluminum that didn't work. Um, uh, when enough spindle power, but this is Delrin So, and it's, a I I think it's gonna be about three millimeter diameter hole. So pretty similar size. It's not exactly three millimeters, but, uh
0: are you going to maybe try progressively stepping up your drill size? Maybe like do a two millimeter and then three millimeter?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I have a couple of things I can do. One is um, do short drill and just come in, you know, one inch, come in from both sides and meet up in the middle with a little bit of overlap. Um, I'm going to test that. I got to figure out how much inaccuracy
0: that introduces, right?
1: Because uh, the. Yeah,
0: I, I feel like that'd be more accurate in some ways.
1: Well you figured the tool won't be like I could use I could use a screw machine drill, like a short drill for that. A um, you know, two inch drill on these machines is gonna that's a pretty long tool for the pocket and see I'm worried you know I'm worried about it kinda drifting a little bit. Uh, even in Delrin, right? Um,
0: yeah, your spot drill will keep you in the right starting point, but everything after that point is sort of up in the air.
1: I could even yeah. You know, I, I was I was thinking about reaming, but that's not really going to fix the problem if you have a drifting drill, right? If that's going to be an issue, the ream will drift also. The tolerance is not real tight on the hole, like on the actual diameter of the hole. Um, but I think the it needs to be straight. That's kind of the key thing.
0: Well, with the, the updated rotary axis calibration, you should be able to drill from both sides and meet up pretty well.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean that will introduce some error, right? Because it's not going to be the same as if you just came from one side, right? Um, so if it's an acceptable amount of error, that makes the part a lot easier to make, kind of more more uh, practical. Because um, the other, of course, the other downside with two inch tooling on the pocket and is I can't auto probe that. I'll have to manually set the the tool length offset like offline and then. Because that's too long to probe, right? It'll oh, collide with the yeah. Because
0: you have to go past the center line.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I need two inches of drill in the material, right? So if if you have more than one point five inches,
0: I'm assuming it's centered. So you have to overshoot the 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 center point.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the limit on the pocket and C is one point five inches of stick out from the spindle collet. I mean, from the if ER you're using a collet, long reach bolt. Yeah, on the on the long tool holder, sorry. Um, actually, yeah, the short tool holder. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of flexibility about where I mount this part with the custom fixturing, so I can actually put it. That's a good idea. I could put it close enough to use the short tool holder. Uh, actually, that's a really good idea.
0: Aren't you glad we do these podcasts?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was already kind of looking at using the tombstone because I could do four at a time. I have to make 50 of these. I could actually put it on the tombstone and then orient the tombstone so the top is facing the spindle and come in that way. got would be drilling towards the base plate. That would that would actually get me pretty close. Yeah, I'll, I'll look at it. So I've got a little bit of uh, experimenting to do before I get kind of a viable process or find out that it's just not going to work on the pocket and see or on the machines here before I commit to it. But I'll know by tomorrow. And um, you know, the gears of repeat work, I think eventually, like everyone gets bored doing the same thing over, but there's still like quite a bit of process optimization for me to do. And I'm enjoying.
0: Yeah. You're still teasing out efficiencies in that.
1: Yeah. And I'm enjoying that. (laughs) um, And I'm getting paid for it. So that's kind of cool too. Um, So yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, at some point, I don't know if I'd want to be making 10,000 of those a month. If I, even if I had the machine to do it right, not by myself, (laughs) if I had a UR 10 kind of tinting it, that'd, that'd be different, but, but yeah, I mean, the quantities I'm doing are, they're still manageable for me and, I'm getting quite a bit out of it as far as, uh, uh, work holding ideas and pushing me to do things I would not be doing as a hobbyist. So I'm liking it so far.
0: I was going to say, uh, once you sort of, um, get tired of, of the, the fixture plates and everything you're doing with the the Bantam tools machines, then just, uh, buy a Datron Neo and then restart your learning process.
1: Yeah. Believe me. I think about that all the time. Cause, uh, I mean, the thing is, you know, the Neo, it would be so much easier with the bigger machine. Some of the stuff I'm doing, right? I mean, some of what makes it hard is working with the constraints of low-powered machines and physical size, too, because, like I said, if I had the much bigger work area, much more powerful spindle, at least I think, right? some of the stuff would be easier. Um, but probably, I would assume your work just scales. Yeah.
0: And you also need the accuracy because these are small parts.
1: Well, I wouldn't worry about that with the Neo. They definitely have the accuracy. Um, I think um, you know the work just scales, right? So if you if you have a faster machine, you'll take on more work, and it'll be just as hard, right, in the end, because you're you know you're make either making more parts or more complex parts than you would have tackled with smaller machines. So you'll probably always kind of wish you had a bigger machine, <laughs> even if you have a bigger machine. There's always the next bigger machine. So speaking of bigger machines, I, I see uh, Grimsmo's got some cool stuff coming his way pretty soon
0: got a machine coming but he's also lusting after some other machines in germany i think
1: yeah so he signed the contract on his uh, swiss style lay tornos i'm really pumped about that i can't wait to see that in action and uh i guess he's he's thinking about a kern
0: at least at the very least dreaming of a kern
1: yeah yeah it's kind of fits in you know most precise machine or one of the world's most precise machines with one of the world's most pickiest uh, machinists pres- you know about precision so perfect perfect marriage here
0: I can't wait to see what they've filmed in there because you don't get a lot of content out there other than the uh, what Kern allows to trickle out through Instagram yeah I'm, I'm hoping there's a shop tour of some sort even if we can't see like the internals of the machine if we can just like see a little more of like what they can make and um, just the machine in action, I think that'd be kind of nice, especially not on a mobile device, like in 1080 or 4k or just, just more content for us to digest, to understand what that machine is capable of.
1: Oh yeah. I'll take as much current porn as I can find. Okay. Well, Winston sounds like you're going to be you heading to the wedding. Is that next week?
0: Next weekend. And then the weekend after that is the, uh, the, the mystery trip, which I, I'll fill you guys in on next time. And it sounds like you're going to get back to making gears.
1: Yeah, actually, I'm done um, with what I'm doing today. I've got, I didn't count, but I think I've got nine full pallets and I think two extra gears, which I probably already have in my inventory, but made it through four pallets so far, so got five more to go.
0: Well, have fun with that.
1: All right, well, thank you, Winston. and looking forward to seeing your big unveil soon on your big aluminum project.
0: It's killing me to keep it a secret, but yeah.
1: Okay, I guess we have to wait for Maker Fair, right?
0: No, I'll, I'll, I'll publish something before then, um, just so that people have extra incentive to, to seek me out.
1: All right, well, Winston, I'm going to say good night and uh, safe travels, and we'll talk again in a couple of weeks.
0: Thank you very much, Eddie. Have a good one.
1: Good night, Winston.